my neighbor? I want you to put that question in back of your mind this morning as we walk through this text together. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Starting in Luke 10, verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him. And he went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, Go And do the same. Heavenly Father, speak to us. Continue to speak to us. And tell us exactly, clearly, who is our neighbor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. That question of who my neighbor is, to really answer that question, we have to start with a deeper question to ponder. And that question is, what kind of person am I? John Piper, in his book, What Jesus Demands from the World, said this. We are done trying to establish, is this my neighbor? The decisive issue of love remains. What kind of person am I? I'm going to show you a clip. It's a movie called Batman Begins, came out in 2005. Bruce Wayne was away from Gotham for a long time. He comes back. He puts on this persona of Batman to try to save Gotham from the criminals. And he's trying to protect his identity, so he's kind of taking Alfred's advice and kind of being this billionaire guy. He just goes around doing whatever he wants. Um, But there's a line in the scene. At first, you'll see them. He comes across his best friend, Rachel Dawes, who was his good friend of his when he was growing up. And then it's going to fast forward to the end of the movie, another clip that shows the same question 
but a little different. The same line. Pay very close attention to it. And when you hear it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Go ahead and show it. Catch the line. It's not what I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. Now, if you just leave that out there, like the movie uh, says, that that's really a false dichotomy because what is inside really does matter. But I like the point that it's making here that you just can't claim something. You have to live it out. In other words, you have to put actions to what you say. And at the end, he kind of redeems himself because now he's actually doing what he's proclaimed he had inside. And it speaks to me that a lot of times in Christianity, especially here in America, we talk a good game. But we fall short of action. So we should be defined by our actions, but our actions are defined by who we are on the inside, and that's defined by our relationship to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Are we going to be like this Samaritan who gives help when it's needed? 
Or are we going to be caught up in questions about, well, who is my neighbor and when should I help and how should I help? Are we just going to be too busy? Wondering if we're going to help this person, will it make me late for my next appointment or work or church? See, what grounds the way we think about our neighbors is based upon our identity and not theirs. So as you walk through this text, keep that in the back of your mind. Because how we define who our neighbor is and how we go about loving our neighbor as ourselves speaks volumes about who we claim to be, our identity that we have in Christ. Look what it says first. It says a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Not much has changed, has it? You guys can laugh to that if you like. (laughs) But a lawyer here means he was an expert in the Mosaic law. He knew the law. So Luke gives us a clue here in the beginning of this by telling us he's a lawyer and that he is going to put him to the test. I don't think this guy was asking a real sincere question, kind of trying to set him up, if you will. And later on, we'll find out that's exactly what he's doing because We read that he tries to justify himself, but we'll get to that in a moment. In the Greek, the word test means try to trap or catch him in a mistake. And the question he asks is a very good question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is not to be confused with trying to earn our salvation. He's asking the question, how do I do it? What must be done? This same question is repeated in Luke chapter 18, verse 18. And it's repeated with some variation in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, and Acts chapter 16, verse 30. And all of them express the very same question or basic question. They reveal that eternal life is a way of asking, how do I get into the kingdom of God? What must I do? What must my actions be like for me to be saved? It would be no different than someone coming to you saying, how do I get eternal life? How can I spend eternity in heaven with God? That's the same question that's being asked here. And look what Jesus does. He kind of turns it around, doesn't he? He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Or how does it read to you? Of course, what is written is decisive. Jesus is affirming the law. The way to eternal life is the same in the old as it is in the new. It is by grace through faith that works in love. At times the word faith must be emphasized. At other times it's love. And the answer given in verse 27 involves a faith consisting of love for God and love for one's neighbor. It's inconceivable to love God unless you have faith in God and a love or a faith does not, that does not love one's neighbor is a faith that is dead. Look at the answer he gives. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Now his answer is consisted of two Old Testament passages, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 5. It starts out with, Hear, O Israel. And that's a very important passage because a devout Jew will repeat that twice a day. It contains three 
propositional phrases, how we are to love God with our heart, our emotions, with our soul, our consciousness, and with our strength, our motivation. And, of course, the last part, love your neighbor as yourself. We looked at this two weeks ago in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Now, we're not clear if these were two linked together at Jesus' time, but early Christian literature shows that these two were connected by loving God and loving one's enemies. Now, for a Jew, back in those days, a neighbor was another Jew. Not a Samaritan or a Gentile. However, the Pharisees did not include all the Jews. So the answer that Jesus has given, I want you to understand, it stands in dark contrast to their understanding of who a neighbor is. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus is affirming that this is indeed the way to eternal life. And those two words, do this, is an imperative. It's a command. And it's a present imperative means it's a continual thing. It's not something you do and you stop. You are to do this on a continuing basis is the point. And here's where it gets interesting. Look what it says. Wishing to justify himself. You ever try to justify yourself? I'm not raising your hand. You're doing it right now. You always try to justify our actions. And he asks Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Because you can see that he's, he's an expert in the law and he's trying to set Jesus up. Who, who is this? And the answer that we just read about that Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan tells us that instead of being so concerned about who our neighbor is, we should be more concerned about being a loving neighbor to them. Once again, it's not about the other person. It's about me. Tim, don't worry about who your neighbor is. You be concerned about being a loving neighbor to everybody you come across is the point. And look at the parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. Now, Jerusalem sits... About 2,500 feet above sea level. So no matter which way you go out of Jerusalem, you're going down. And Jericho sits about 17 miles east of Jerusalem. And there's a picture right here. You'll see the road. That is Jerusalem on the horizon. So you see the people going down to Jericho. And you can see where robbers would hide among the rocks in the desert. It's also a very, you know, not a lot of people out there. So if you got robbed, you may be laying there for a good while before someone else came along to help you. So this guy was in pretty bad shape. I mean, he, he was robbed, he was beaten, apparently he couldn't walk, and there he was on this road, waiting for somebody to help, hoping someone would stop and help. And look what he says, by a chance a priest was going down that road. A priest would be a descendant of Aaron. He would be involved in the sacrifices and the maintenance of the temple. He couldn't defile himself by contacting himself with a with a dead body, except in the case of a close relative. So perhaps he didn't want to go near the guy and help him because he didn't want to defile himself. Or perhaps he was scared and didn't want to get attacked himself if he stopped to help. But Luke doesn't tell us any motivation why he did not stop. Jesus says he passed by on the other side. Now you have to realize the guy wasn't laying here and he just walked by. He went on the other side of the road and walked by. That's the point. 
The point is not telling us why he did it. The point is that he did it. That he didn't stop to help, but he passed them by. Then likewise, the Levite, when he came to that place, what did he do? Did the same thing. He was the son of the tribe of Levi who assisted the priest. He helped, but he couldn't do the sacrificial stuff, so he wouldn't have to worry about defiling himself. He, he could have stopped. Why didn't he? We don't know, but the point here is that he didn't stop. Now, let me, let me just set this up. You have, a, you have a priest and you have a Levite who knew the law, knew what it said. Leviticus 19, remember that in context? Don't be a gossip on all that stuff we looked at. They knew that. Now, when you read in your English translation, you don't get this as much, but in the Greek, the, the word Samaritans in the emphatic position. And what I mean by emphatic is this. It puts, he doesn't scream it. He puts emphasis on it. It's like my daughter sitting in front of me. Hey, Allison. See, Allison, I'm, put, I'm not necessarily screaming it, but I'm putting emphasis on it. So when he spoke this, he'd be, but a Samaritan. And but, oh boy, I bet that went over real well. But a Samaritan came. And Jesus deliberately chooses an outsider and a hated one at that for his hero in order to indicate that being a neighbor is not a matter of nationality or race. Which now we have to put this in some context here. Because the way that first century audience would hear this parable. So there is some historical context we must look at. The kingdom of Israel was united under King David and under King Solomon. But after Solomon died, the kingdom split. And you can see the split right there. You have the kingdom of Israel to the north, which is in green, and the kingdom of Judah, which is to the south. Due to some foolishness of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and you can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 12. Ten northern tribes were known as Israel, Ephraim, or at some time Samaria. Samaria. Now, interesting, in 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire up there to the north will be the top right of the screen. They came down and they conquered the northern tribe, the northern part. And the leading citizens were exiled and dispersed throughout the Assyrian Empire. So what happened is now non-Jewish people came in the Kingdom of Israel, the north. And guess what happened? Take a wild guess. They started intermarrying. And they weren't supposed to do that. So the people in the south, by the way, the, the term Jew comes from Judah, would look at them as half breeds. Now after captivity, the Samaritans came back and they... They wanted to help rebuild the temple, but they said, no, we don't want you doing that. They tried to impede the building of the temple, but they went and finally built their own Mount Gerizim. So there is mutual hatred between Jews and Samaritans. I cannot stress enough. So when that first century audience heard this parable, when that word Samaritan came out of his mouth, it grabbed their attention. 
Think about the racism that's alive here in well in the United States. Not just racial, but also socioeconomic. That's the same type of force it would have today. They wouldn't think of a Samaritan being be able to do that because they were less than human. They weren't really Jewish people. In fact, the hostility between the group was so great. In John chapter 8, verse 48, the Jews answered and said to Jesus, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? But yet in this parable, who's the hero? It's a Samaritan. And what did he do when he, he, he saw him? And he said he felt compassion. He bandaged up his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. He put them on his donkey. Guy couldn't walk. He brought them to an inn, took care of him. And on the next day, he brought money to take care. Make sure you take two of them. Now, Daenerys was equivalent to a day's wage. So the point being made here is that there was enough money given. The Samaritan gave enough money to the innkeeper to make sure this guy had all the resources he needed to be taken care of. And he says, by the way, if that doesn't cover it, these two days wages, I will come back and repay anything back. So not only the Samaritan showing him to be a good neighbor, he also gives us an example of what it means to be a good steward of our possessions. Because he gives that money not expecting anything in return. He just does it. It is interesting at the end of the parable, Jesus looks at the Lord and says, well, who, who, was, the, who was the neighbor to this guy? The natural answer would be, well, the Samaritan was. He doesn't do that, does he? He said, the one who had mercy and compassion. He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. That's how powerful this this parable was to them. Really shaking up their mind about who their neighbor is. Loving God religiously as the priest and the Levite, they would think that they would do that. And they would. But Jesus is saying, if you're going to do that, it's meaningless unless it's accompanied by love. That is expressed to others when they most need it. Did the priest and the Levite judge the guy by his condition? Maybe they thought, well, he brought it on himself. He deserves it. Let him suffer. I don't care. It's not my problem. We can be like that priest and Levite of this parable. When we see people who are dirty, look desperate and unkept, we may falsely accuse them of getting what they deserve. But judging others by their brokenness distracts us from being able to love them. To see the way that we can show them the love of Jesus. Who is my neighbor? First question I must answer, do I love God? Do I have faith in God? If I answer that yes, then what this parable shows me, that a neighbor is not defined by nationality, race, social and economic standing. All that stuff the world wants to separate us and box us into, all that falls down to the ground. Who's my neighbor? Anyone in my proximity that I need meet a physical or spiritual need and to show them the love of Jesus. That's it. 
doesn't matter if they look like me, talk like me. I am to show them the love of Jesus. And you know what? That is hard. Loving others isn't easy. We, it's, under, it's important for us to understand what true love is. We love people by generally seeking the, what's best for them. doesn't mean we agree with everything they do. and doesn't mean that we act in a way that's always trying to gain their approval. Let me ask you this. As you go about your day-to-day activity, what are you paying attention to? What am I paying attention to? Are we looking for people who might need a word of hope? We often get distracted from the needs and the hearts of the people around us because we're so focused on ourselves. The people at the cashiers waiting to be checked out at Walmart or wherever, at the gas pumps or even sometimes right in this room. There could be someone hurting We have to remind ourselves, dearly beloved, that when that name falls on our heart, it's not by accident. The Holy Spirit's prompting you to go to that brother or sister, to be that word of hope, to be that word of encouragement. But a lot of times we get too busy thinking what we need to do to hurry up and get to our next destination, get my to-do list done. It's kind of like what Larry says in his Bible study class many times. We need to be interruptible and have our eyes and our heart always open. Do we just get so wrapped up in ourselves, worrying about what we ought to do next, where we need to go, or is it the fact that we're just too busy doing this on our phones? And I'm just as guilty as the next guy. You know how many people I see doing this, Walmart, at the airport, people driving ground equipment, people driving cars, families having dinner. Now, I like, I like my, my smartphone. This must understand me, but don't get distracted by this, that I miss all of this. Because in the end, relationships are the only thing that matter, right? Think about it. When you leave this earth, it's not going to matter how much money you had. It's not going to matter what kind of house you lived in. It's not going to matter what size church I pastored or what people thought of me. It's not even going to matter what you thought of me. I hope you like me. I mean, I'll be honest. But on that day when I stand before God, my maker and creator, the only thing that's going to matter is my relationship to him through Christ. That's it. And then from my three girls and my wife, the four people in this world I love more than anything else, they know how much I love them. You know, I've had many more opportunities than I care to, to think about watching people take their last I never heard a gentleman tell me on his deathbed that he wished he had worked more overtime. 
that he wished he had had a bigger house or that he could have bought more things. I always heard this one thing. I wish I would spend more time with my family. Because I want them to know how much I love them. So we think about reset. This is critical. We have to wrap our minds around loving God, loving each other, and loving our neighbors. They're all around us. Don't have to go very far. And like I said, it begins right here in this room. Some of you in this room are carrying a load so heavy. You're afraid to say something. Perhaps you, people might see you weak or you just think you can handle it yourself. But that weight you're carrying is so heavy it's about to crush you. Dearly beloved, you're not meant to carry that alone. Give it over to Christ. Let your brothers and sisters come alongside of you and carry that burden with you, help you with that. The worst thing that we can do, in my opinion, is to isolate ourselves and think, I have to do this all alone. No, you don't. But first, we have to take care of the biggest obstacle in our way, and that's ourselves. I want to close, and you have to bear with me. I did that, put this to memory. But I want to close with this, with this letter. And it really kind of sums up everything I've been trying to communicate to you this morning. This letter was written by Deborah Green. You can see a picture. That's her and her dad. And this is where it happened at Whole Foods. And I'm just going to read the letter. And times I may have to, that chokes me up when I read it, just, just pay attention. Dear strangers, I remember you. Ten, month, ten months ago when my cell phone rang with the news of my father's suicide, you were walking to the Whole Foods prepared to do your grocery shopping just as I had been only minutes before you. But I had already abandoned my cart full of groceries, and I stood in the entryway of the store. My brother was on the other end of the line. He was telling me my father was dead. That he had taken his own life early that morning, and through his sobs, I remember my brother kept saying, I'm sorry, Deborah, I'm sorry. I can't imagine how it must have felt for him to make that call. After I hung up, I started to cry and scream as my whole body trembled. This couldn't be true. It couldn't be happening. Only moments before I had been going about my errands on a normal morning, Monday morning. Only moments before my life had felt intact. Overwhelmed with emotions, I fell to the floor, my knees buckling under the weight of what I just learned. And you kind strangers were there. You, have kept, you could have kept on walking, ignoring my cries, but you didn't. You could have simply stopped and stared at my primal display of pain, but you didn't. No, instead you surrounded me as I yelled through my sobs. My father killed himself. He killed himself. He's dead. And the question that has plagued me since that moment came to my lips, and they scream, why? I must have asked it over and over again. I remember in the haze of emotions, one of you asked for my phone and who you should call. 
What was my password? You needed my father's name as you searched through my contacts. I remember that I could hear your words as you tried to reach my husband for me, leaving an urgent message for him to call me. I recall hearing you discuss among yourselves who would drive me home in my car and who would follow that person to bring them back to the store. You didn't even know one another, but it didn't seem to matter. You encountered me a stranger in the worst moment of my life. And you surrounded me with one common purpose, to help. I remember one of you asking if you could pray for me and my father. I must have said yes. And I recall now that Christian prayer being offered up to Jesus for my Jewish father and me. And it still brings tears to my eyes and makes, makes me smile. In my fog, I told you that I had a friend, Pam, who worked at Whole Foods. And one of you went and searched for her. Thankfully, she was there that morning, and you brought her to me. I remember the relief, the relief I felt seeing her face familiar and warm. She took me to the back, comforting and caring for me so lovingly until my husband could get there. I even recall as I sat with her, one of you sent back a gift card to Whole Foods. Though you didn't know me, you want to offer a little something to let me know that you would be thinking of me and holding me and my family in your thoughts and prayers The gift card helped to feed my family when the idea of cooking was so far beyond my emotional reach. I never saw you after that, but I know this to be true. If it were not for all of you, I might have simply got in the car and tried to drive myself home. I wasn't thinking straight if I was thinking at all. If it were not for you, I do not know what I've done in those first raw moments of overwhelming shock anguish and grief but i thank god every day that i didn't have to find out your kindness your compassion your willingness to help a stranger in need have stayed with me until this day and no matter how many times my mind takes me back to that horrifying life-altering moment it's not all darkness because you reached out to help you've offered a ray of light in the bleakest moment i have endured you may not remember it may not even remember me, but I will never, ever forget you. And though you may never know it, I give thanks for your presence and humanity each and every day. Deborah Green lives in Superior, Colorado. That, to me, captures what it means to be a neighbor. People even know each other gathered around her, and helped her the best they could. That's what it's all about. Who is my neighbor? Anyone I come in contact with that needs that word of hope, that needs encouragement, needs a physical or spiritual need. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes this moment. Maybe someone in this room needs that. And right now, God is impressing upon your heart a name or names. Please, I exhort you to be obedient to Him. Perhaps you've never given your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now I'd ask you, 
Let the day be that day. You're among people who love each other, who love Christ. Perhaps there's something in your own life that you're grappling with. Perhaps only you know about it. And perhaps it's a, it's a circumstance that we bring. You're just afraid to, to let go or tell anybody because of the shame or whatever the circumstance may be. Let me tell you, friend, you're never too far gone where Jesus can't reach you. But you have to be willing. You have to cry out. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for your word. We thank you, dear God, that you don't leave us alone in our sin and our shame and our guilt. But you sent your one and only son down here to walk among us, to demonstrate and to show us your love. To teach us. And ultimately displaying his love for us on that cross so many years ago. But we praise your name this morning. The story did not stop there. For on the third day he rose from the dead. Victorious over sin and over death. He sits at your right hand even now interceding for all of us. Father, I beseech you this morning that you would knock down walls, that you'd break chains that are holding us back. As we look forward to this time of reset and reaching out to this community, dear God, we know it must begin with us. Give us the the courage to let go. And to simply trust you with everything. I pray, dear God, that you would draw men and women, boys and girls, unto yourself. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to move among us. May we be obedient to your call. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.